0: All right, we're back. Episode two, um, Electric Boogaloo, or uh, epi- episode two, the Richard Donner cut. Um, this will be <clears throat> this will be relevant uh, as the episode goes on. So we're back. Uh, yes, we are. Questions like this, the most um, demanded podcast in the history of podcasting. Um, That's. <laughs> uh twenty five million uh listens of the first episode um sixty nine thousand subscribers wait that doesn't the math doesn't work but whatever <laughs> point um. is the point is we're back <laughs> yeah so yeah my name's aristo Hi. and uh i'm one of the hosts for uh, questions like this
1: and my my name is Alex, I'm the other host for questions like this, and uh, here we are, we're back again, uh, back by popular demand, kind of, sort of.
0: Hey, we we got some hits, man. Uh, we're starting off slow, but we're, you know, we'll, we're building up steam. It's
1: alright. It's alright. This is just the beginning.
0: Just it's the beginning, just my like friend. the beginning of our world domination through podcasting. <laughs>
1: Pretty much. And speaking of uh, world domination, today on questions like this, we're going to be talking to you lovely listeners about the rise and fall of the canon group.
0: Yeah, so the question we're asking is, how basically, how did Canon Pictures or Canon Group or uh, Golan Globus... uh, how did they manage to stay in existence and how how were they successful despite making such um number ones as um superman the quest for peace and uh life force uh, masters of the universe masters of the universe and um yeah or um you know the the infamous American ninja series of films
1: (laughs) or the or the enter the ninja series of films
0: that too (laughs) so
1: yeah we're gonna get into all that today we're gonna be discussing just basically how that's pretty much the question for this week and hopefully uh, Hopefully this answers all of your questions you may have about Canon, or if you've never heard of Canon before, this will, this will help you get informed.
0: Yeah, I think I think most people have never heard of like Canon Group, but I'm pretty sure most people have seen one of their movies because um, despite. Despite uh, everything, they they seem to be a, they they were a rather prolific studio, and they 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 either co-produced or distributed a number of uh, movies that were emblematic of the eighties and early nineties.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And they were the personifications of everything related to schlock, pretty much. Basically, think of the lowest budgeted. Indie production you've ever heard of before, and multiply that by about five hundred, a thousand maybe, and that's where Canon currently uh, currently sits. All thanks to the work of two cousins, Menachem Golan and Yoram Globus.
0: Yeah, otherwise known as the Go Go Boys.
1: The Go Go Boys. That's right. Amongst. <laughs> Amongst other names that uh Hollywood uh, derisively called them. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, so this is um it's it's quite a storied production company and actually I guess um the history started uh quite a bit before uh, the cousins came into the picture. Uh you you want to talk about like kind of like the early days of Canon Films or Canon sure. Pictures?
1: well Canon films uh, actually began you know like you said way before Golan and Globus came over from Israel um, it actually started in the uh, the late ni- mid to late 1960s and they were basically doing what Golan and Globus would become known for they created like these incredibly schlocky low-budget films involving sex and horror and they would film it Sometimes they would film it in exotic locations, like Sweden or Portugal or what have you. But no one really—it like you know, oh, like you know, that, that's nice, that's fine. You know, just you know, keep uh, keep doing your thing, and uh, maybe it'll turn a profit. Maybe it'll, maybe it won't. But uh, at least we'll be uh, around next week to pick up a paycheck.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it seems to be a recurring theme in Hollywood where uh people started out making uh, softcore porn and uh, canon films was uh was not an outlier um they they did no? a few uh they did a few swedish uh softcore films I, I don't think they were particularly famous but yeah they were out there
1: oh they were and you're right they did do a lot of swedish films uh they actually shot them on location in sweden and to uh and to American audiences still basking in the glow of the uh, like the new wave cinema that dominated most of the fifties and sixties, if they saw something that came from Sweden, they thought, you know, oh my God, this is this is going to be exactly like uh, Ingmar Bergman. Uh, it's going to be uh, uh set it's going to be like uh, Seventh Seal, where uh, uh, the protagonist the uh, battles the uh, the devil in an epic uh, chess match to determine whether he gets to Live or die, but no, it was a, it was
0: a modicum mm-hmm.
1: of that. That basically was an excuse for a, uh, a lot of a, uh, a lot of sex.
0: Yeah, basically, they were expecting like either Seventh Seal or um, uh, other Ingmar Bergman films, but they got like I Am Curious Yellow, basically. <laughs> mm-hmm. but, well, like a shitty version of that.
1: Well, pretty much. Uh, but uh, every once in a while, they would crank out uh, a movie that actually got decent reviews. Like in 1970, they made uh, the movie Joe, which was directed by uh, John G. Uh, Avildsen, who recently passed away. May he rest in peace. For those that don't know, John Avildsen was the director of the uh, not only Rocky, but uh, the Karate Kid as well.
0: Yeah, I guess the other question we could have asked is basically, who made the 80s?
1: (laughs) That is a very good question. That is a very good question, considering the 80s. God, the 80s were a weird time
0: in (laughs) Hollywood.
1: I mean, if you think about it, you know, the 80s, you started seeing the, uh, the rise of sequels, to a lot of popular movies from the 70s literally starting in 1980 with the uh, with Empire Strikes Back
0: Hell yeah man
1: Yeah but then you also saw the rise of like you know these uh, you know these big budgeted action movies with people like Stallone, Schwarzenegger, Willis, uh, Van Damme and uh, even and Jackie Chan as well and what have you It was a weird time to actually I guess the, I don't know, I think it was a time where basically anybody who had enough money and a camera could go and make a film and people would somehow see it.
0: Yeah, and um, I mean, uh, I I would just chalk it up to like the crazy amount of like drugs and narcotics that were available in the 80s, but you know. (laughs)
1: That too, that too.
0: So, yeah, that was, uh, you know, I, actually, I just, uh, looked it up and, like, Joe had Susan Sarandon, uh, and Peter Boyle. Among, right. among other, uh, actors. So. Absolutely. Yeah, they, uh, they managed to, uh, they managed to get some talent every now and then. Mm hmm. But, uh, they did. Yeah, this is, um, I guess that was, like, the early years of, uh, canon um it wasn't uh, until i guess uh 79 when uh when when uh, canon films started heading into like dire financial straits so um uh, the original guys they they ended up selling the company to to the cousins to the israeli cousins Menachem golan and uh, yoram globus
1: yes yes they did and for those that don't know, uh, people consider uh, Menachem Golan to be the father of Israeli cinema. Before he and uh, Globus uh, bought Canon, they made over uh, 40 films together in, uh, in Israel, including uh, Operation Thunderbolt, which is about the the infamous Radon Entebbe, in which uh, actually got them an Academy Award nomination for uh, Best Foreign Film, and they made the... Uh, the teen sex comedy called uh, *Lemon Popsicle*. Think of it as like the precursor to films like uh, *Like Porkies* and *Fast Times at Ridgemont High* and Re- *and Revenge of the Nerds*. And *Lemon Popsicle* actually, still to this day, is the highest-grossing Israeli film of all time.
0: Yeah, so uh, I, I got to get on that. I, I got to watch *Lemon Popsicle* at some point.
1: Uh, it's it's quite something to behold. Let's just uh. Let's just say that
0: uh, so, I, mean, you, yeah.
1: <laughs> I mean if you've seen you know fast times of Ridgemont High and Porkys and Revenge of the Nerds, it's very very similar to that it's like you know your your classic uh, coming of age story, but it also has you know a lot a lot of a lot of sex, a lot of nudity deals with all the uh the trials and tribulations of going through high school, and yeah.
0: So, yeah, basically, um, Canon Films, uh, the originator of everything.
1: (laughs) You could say that. You could say that. And so, right after they made a Lemon Popsicle, uh, like you said, uh, uh, Golan and Globus were able to purchase uh, the Canon Group. They came aboard around 1979 and 1980. And for the most part, they followed the... uh, they follow the traditional canon formula, like either make low-budget horror films or make, uh, you know, cheap uh, exploitation sex comedies. Films like uh, like Schizoid or The Happy Hooker Goes Hollywood. Yes, that is the title of an actual canon film, um, <laughs> or uh, House of the Long Shadows, which. That really is something to behold, because House of the Long Shadows has, they gathered all the great like masters of horror from the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and literally just put them together in one film. They put together uh, John Carradine, Vincent Price, uh, Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, and just said, like, you know, here, we're making a movie starring all these guys. Go see it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, and actually, you know, um, I guess Roger Ebert kind of give him credit too, is that Canon's output was actually like insanely diverse and varied. Um, they made, basically their business model is just like buying any script in, in like as cheap of a price as possible and somehow turning those into, uh, films, And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, like we said, they managed to, to make some good ones, some memorable ones. Um, yeah. So, uh, um, among other things, um, Canon is probably remembered for like Chuck Norris movies like Delta Force and, uh, Invasion USA, uh, Mm -hmm. Ninja films like American Ninja and, uh, Enter the Ninja movies. And uh yeah, um the the documentaries breaking and breaking to Electric Boogaloo and
1: uh I wouldn't I wouldn't quite call those movies uh documentaries. Yeah. But uh but uh yeah, they were you're right, they're very uh varied in their uh their production. They would release something like uh over twenty plus films a year, which was at least twice what the Actual studios at the time were uh, were producing.
0: Yeah, um, actually, you kind of want to talk about um, yeah. I mean, we can talk about the ninja movies. <laughs> oh my
1: god! Um, so yeah, the the, the ninja movies. Uh, it started in 1981 with the Enter the Ninja, which starred a. Uh, uh, it, it ta- Italian action star uh, Franco Nero, whose voice is horrendously dubbed in that movie. And by I say horrend, when I say horrendously dubbed, I mean it sounds nothing like him at all.
0: Yeah, it was um, it was like a complete like disconnect from how Franco Nero actually sounded, and whoever they got to dub his voice in this movie.
1: It actually sounded like Chuck Norris dubbed his voice, even though he wasn't signed with Canon at the time.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, like, you know, it's your basic, uh, I, I don't really know. I don't really know how to describe it. It's like, it's a ninja, it's a ninja movie that has ninja in the title, but it doesn't, it's not really a ninja movie. It's, I'm, I'm very confused as I was watching it. I became very confused pretty early on, which is what I'm going to say about a lot of these, uh, a lot of these films. Um, But it's, I don't know, involves like land purchasing or something like that. And the villain has a, a, a hook for an arm. And yeah, I don't know
0: yeah it's it's a weird movie where like this guy is like some veteran of some war and somehow he he gets to have ninjutsu training in japan and then um yeah i think i think it's in the philippines and um somehow like the 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 bad guy is trying to get the the property of his friends or whatever because there's oil or whatever resource and uh yeah, basically it's just an excuse plot to to have like a bunch of uh, fight scenes strung, strung together.
1: Oh yes, oh, you gotta love those uh, those fight scenes with the most over the top uh, reactions you will ever see. There's literally one scene towards the end where Franco Nero throws a ninja star at this <laughs> this one guy. It hits him smack in the chest. And he falls down in the most over the top, over the top way. Like he raises, he has a gun in his hand. He raises it. He drops the gun. He has like a very elongated scream. Like he pats his chest a couple of times to make sure (laughs) the ninja star is actually there. And then as he's falling over, he just looks at Franco Nero and just gives him a shrug. As if to say like, you know, really, Did, did you just do that?
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. Um this is one of the this is one of the movies that kind of like kicked off like the ninja craze in the 80s. Oh yeah. And it's and it's got all the hallmarks, you know, the 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 cheesy like uh incredibly like you know earnest but like not not that good acting. Uh, cheesy fight scenes and uh, crazy uh, crazy stunts and uh, you know it, it be, uh, and like as little plot as possible.
1: So the Fast and the Furious movies then? Yeah,
0: basically. I mean this was the Fast and Furious of the, of the 80s.
1: As were most of their films. I uh, think. Yeah, as
0: were most of <laughs> Canon's output. Yeah. <laughs>
1: So yeah, uh, somehow inexplicably, uh, that film actually turned a profit, and uh, uh, Golem and Globus said, like, you know, we need another one right away, because we don't know how long this craze is going to last. So literally, the next year, they started making Revenge of the Ninja.
0: Yes. Uh, with only one person returning from the original film.
1: Yes. That was Shokasugi, right?
0: Yeah, it was Shokasugi, who, who actually played the bad ninja in the first one, and now he is yeah. the the hero.
1: So it was Terminator 2 before Terminator 2 actually happened?
0: Yeah, I mean, basically.
1: Okay. <laughs> cool. Cool, that's not bad. Um. Well, yeah, it's basically, I, yeah, basically the same thing. Uh, although, give credit to Shokasugi. he actually does does have the skills to uh, to pull off being a ninja.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, I'm actually less familiar with Revenge of the Ninja. I forget. I think the plot somehow has them go to Salt Lake City for whatever reason. Well, I mean, we all know the real reason is because it was cheap to film there, but I forgot what the excuse was.
1: I don't I don't know. And I just watched the documentary about it. And apparently the original script that they they actually shot, they shot a movie. But apparently, according to to Golan and Globus, it was such shit that Golan made up a new story right on the spot.
0: I like, mean it, it, you know when you see the movie and uh although I haven't seen it in a while um that is entirely possible
1: that it is that it is and I this is this is the beginning of it just to give you an example of how batshit insane this movie is um so yeah it opens on this uh, this couple with their infant son and then all of a sudden, for no reason whatsoever, ninjas show up and they kill every, they kill everybody at this house. They kill like the, the, the mom and dad. They kill uh, the like, people that work there. They kill like random guests who just happen to be at the house. But they leave the, the baby alive. And the, the, the leader of the ninja clan uh, takes the baby and raises it as his own. And that's where the movie begins. Um, and then, because somehow that all, that also made money, the very next year they didn't even wait. <laughs> they didn't even wait a, a year. I saw wait home. Enter the Ninja came out in eighty one. Revenge yeah. of the Ninja in eighty three. Yeah, then the and, very
0: and Ninja three the, was eighty four.
1: Yes, Ninja three, the domination. That's the, that's, I kid you not, that's the name of the title, Ninja 3, The Domination, which manages to combine The Exorcist, a ninja movie, and Flashdance.
0: Yeah, um, so to give you an idea, um, one of the main characters is a woman who teaches aerobics class, (laughs) who somehow gets possessed by an evil ninja spirit. (laughs) (laughs) oh my god yeah it's it just sounds so
1: ridiculous when you think about it it's like wow you actually came up with this and you paid people to write it
0: you know know, just like in the last episode where we were like gobsmacked with um the quote-unquote plot of the, the recent transformers movie well, it turns out that things can be worse. Yep.
1: It, yes, it's very, very true. So yeah, and somehow she gets, like you said, she gets possessed by the spirit of a ninja. And there's a scene where she's like tied up in chains, and her like in a knot in a knot to the exorcist. Instead of her head spinning around, it's like her whole body spins around, and like she works with the uh, like she works with Shokusugi to. Uh, Set free the spirit of the of the evil ninja, I don't know it's it sounds so forcibly contrived that <laughs> it makes you wonder what they were smoking at the time
0: I don't know uh but but I want whatever they're having
1: <laughs> me too i'll I'll take two of those uh,
0: so so yeah, those were. Those were the ninja movies. And uh, the third one actually has uh, James Hong, which uh, you might recognize from Blade Runner, uh, Big Trouble in Little China, Wayne's World 2. And he's the voice of uh, one. of uh, I think he was an administrator in uh, Mulan. He was. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess we could we could do an episode on James Hong because if you look at his film credits, he's basically in every movie ever made.
1: Pretty, <laughs> pretty much.
0: Yeah, he's like uh, <clears throat> it. It him and Al Long, I think. Uh, Al, uh, L e o n g. Um, if you look up their film credits on IMDb or uh, TV tropes or some shit they basically have been in every movie ever made either as like a walk on or a bit character or sometimes a you know uh main character
1: mhm yeah absolutely no we got to do an episode about them
0: yeah the uh the the curious uh roles that uh actors are willing to take
1: yes <laughs> yes so, yeah, after, after the Ninja films were, uh, going back to uh, to canon for a bit, after the Ninja films proved to be, I guess you could say they were successful because they somehow turned a profit, uh, one of their biggest hits, actually, was uh, the break-in movies. Yeah. Basically the, the film about breakdancing.
0: Yeah. Um, so... Breaking One, uh, I think that came out in, also came out in eighty four, mm-hmm. and um, there's some pretty famous people in there. Uh, Ice T, and uh, if you look carefully, uh, Jean Claude Van Damme is uh, one he of is the people there. in the movie.
1: He is there. He is a random extra. Uh, in a scene where somebody's breakdancing and it's so jarring like to know what what a star he would eventually become but it's so jarring almost to see him like this is where he made his uh, his film debut but yeah this is the uh, the infamous movie about uh, about breakdancing uh they got some of the uh, originators on the break, of the breakdancing a scene in LA to be the stars of the movie they got a uh, Boogaloo shrimp and uh, Shabadoo
0: and uh, Poppin st- Pe- Pop Pete, man,
1: and Poppin Pete exactly uh, to star alongside uh, Lucinda Dickey, who was in Ninja Three, and yeah, it uh, it it made money. It was actually their biggest film, biggest film ever. Like it made like something in the Range of like sixty-five to seventy million on a one million dollar budget, and it's interesting because at the same time, uh, Orion Pictures um, were actually producing a similar film, a similar breakdancing film called Beat Street, and Golan and Globus were so determined to be the first one, to be the first ones to make a, a breakdancing movie that they literally rushed through production and only took like four or five weeks to actually complete.
0: You know, it's a kind of like contrast with, uh, beat street, uh, beat streets in, uh, New York and focuses on the New York, like hip hop scene and uh, dance scene. So th- they got some, uh, they, they got some stars there too. Uh, like, um, uh, Grandmaster Melamel and the furious five were there. Uh, cool Herc. And, uh, I think uh, Africa, Bambada and his uh, and the Soul Sonic Force were there too in uh, Beat Street.
1: Yep, they were all there. Pretty much anyone you can think of. That was the that was the originators of uh, East Coast uh, hip hop. Were in that film. <laughs>
0: Yeah, so um, like we said, this was made on a shoestring budget and somehow managed to return <laughs> many times over, and uh, it got it got a sequel.
1: It did. The infamous sequel known as Break Into Electric Boogaloo, and no, we have no idea what Electric Boogaloo actually means, and to be honest, neither did the production.
0: Yeah, and it's such a weird title that most people. Um, that that's really what most people remember about the movie.
1: Yeah, pretty much. And when whenever a bad sequel comes out, or when any sequel comes out that falls short of expectations, they all <laughs> film critics or internet commentators they always say, you know, the name of the title. And Electric Boogaloo. Like Electric Boogaloo has become the go to uh go to nickname for uh, shitty sequels. But yeah. uh,
0: um you know, uh Shabadoo and Boogaloo Shrimp are back and uh Ice T are back in this movie as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, But no Van this
1: time. I said no Jean Claude Van Damme this yeah, time. Yeah,
0: no, he's uh I I think he's uh he He's moving on to better things.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think around the bo- uh, Electric Boogaloo came out, he was already deep into production on a uh, Bloodsport.
0: Hell yeah, Frank Dukes Kumite, yes. <laughs> which is uh, Canon affiliated.
1: It is affiliated, but so actually, no, it is affiliated with Canon.
0: I, th- I think they had the distribution on, um, on Bloodsport. They did. Yeah, yeah. Did it? You know that the best part about that movie is like I think they were in China or whatever, and uh, uh, Van Damme and his friend were in line to get into like the. In line to get into the fight, and this like giant Chinese man is like looking him up and down, and. Uh, uh, either Van Damme or his friend was like we're American and um, the Chinese guy just looks him and then like gives him a thumbs up and is like okay USA oh my god <laughs> and I was like I, I you know besides like the, the the eye scene like that's probably the thing that I love the most about that movie It's just like unexpected (laughs) it's just a stupid thing for me to remember
1: (laughs) yeah jean-claude van damme the most belgian sounding american you can think of yeah
0: (laughs) yeah oh man um yeah so so far canon has made ninja films and breakdancing films But um, like we said, uh, they had a really diverse output. Um, Were there any other specifics that you wanted to um, talk about?
1: Uh, In terms of their films?
0: Yeah, in terms of their output. um, We could talk about uh, their their action films with with Chuck Norris.
1: Oh, my God, yes. Here we go. Canon Films, the home of the two Chucks. Uh, Chuck Norris and uh, Chuck Bronson yes. And <laughs> For those that don't know Charles Bronson was one of the biggest Action stars Of the 60s and 70s He made uh, Once Upon a Time in the West He made The Dirty Dozen He made the first uh, Death Wish And so on and so forth By the time he got to canon The first film he did with them was Death Wish 2 which the entire Death Witch series, I <laughs> it's a series that basically makes uh, conservatives cream themselves every time they watch it.
0: Yeah, it's um, you know it's it's a revenge fantasy series basically. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. Um, fuck, I can't do the 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 Bronson voice really well, but yeah, basically it's. Uh, one man who you know his mm. his wife was murdered and his daughter was uh raped or assaulted yeah and, that was it. Uh, he he decides to take matters into his own hands and mm. uh, basically fuck shit up in uh New York in the seventies
1: that's right that's right that's exactly what happened. He becomes like a one man uh one man vigilante. And he, uh, yeah, wreaks havoc on all of New York. And then he does it again eight years later in 1982 in Death Wish 2. Yep. Which, yeah, it's pretty much the same uh, the same plot. It's basically the same plot. Um, <laughs> there's one scene where he comes across one kid and Bronson's holding a a shotgun and like this kid, like this kid, he's like, he's like holding onto a cross and Bronson says to him, it's like, you know, like, like, do you believe in Jesus? And the kid just goes like, yes, I do. And Bronson just goes like, well, you're going to meet him and just shoots him in the stomach.
0: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's, yeah, it's one of those classics.
1: (laughs) I, then for some reason, I don't know why they made death wishes 3, 4 and 5 which <laughs> uh as one uh, as one guy in the documentary puts it, uh they're related by blood but they're the family we don't talk about.
0: Yeah. Um basically, you know, um not sure how they managed to milk a revenge fantasy to five uh, to five movies, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: who knows at this point? And it's actually a funny anecdote. I heard this, that um, uh, <laughs> Bronson almost at this point was into like semi-retirement. It was when he was filming those films, he was doing those films. He would literally have a. He would literally have a guy in a Jaguar drive him from his dressing room to the set, which was only like three feet away. <laughs> <laughs> and like, according to one of the cast members, uh, Alex Winter, who you might know from uh, Bill and Ted, uh, he said it was like watching a man uh, leisurely play golf. Yeah, like instead of actually acting. Mm -hmm. But yeah, uh, and I guess, I guess uh, he liked what he was doing because he got paid and uh, he did uh, five five of those films. Whereas Chuck Norris, you can consider Chuck Norris the only one that, one of the few that was actually loyal to Canon from the beginning because like he called up uh, one of the producers and said, "Like you know, hey, I want to, uh, I want to branch out. I want to make, uh, you know, I want to make my first uh, mainstream uh, Hollywood film. I want to be, i making, you know, my first uh, American film." Which led to movies like, uh, like Missing in Action, <laughs> Invasion USA, and Delta Force, which is pretty much right up Norris's alley because he really. And, you know, I, I'm i sorry if I may offend all you uh, Chuck Norris enthusiasts uh, out there, but the man really can't act. I mean, yeah, you know, he's legit, you know, karate champ and expert in martial arts and all that, but the man can't can't act to save his life.
0: Yeah, and it really shows, you know, and um <clears throat> Delta Force, the, De- the Delta Force is also <clears throat> one of those movies that are like, quote unquote ripped from the headlines it's it was like semi-inspired by real um plane hijacking and i think it was 85 or 86 but yeah i mean it is the entire plot of the movie uh or rather the entire plot of the movie is this hijacking so um yeah (laughs) uh, and u s <laughs> Delta force has to uh rescue some people from uh from a group of lebanese terrorists that's
1: right played by native uh <laughs> Na- played by a native uh played by a native of chicago Robert forster yeah <laughs> it's like it's like yeah okay sure i I, I guess. Um, uh, I don't know. I guess people in the '80s weren't really questioning this kind of thing. <laughs> I don't know, but I feel like you know, seeing those films, it's like you know, complete, you know, complete U.S. Uh, propaganda at its finest. And basically, what uh, <laughs> what uh, Golan and Globus were doing, they were, by the way, Golan actually directed uh, the Delta Force. Uh, they were basically trying to make you know American movies for Americans, you know. Then they did it on a very uh, conservative level too, kind of like the old uh, old studio heads.
0: Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know this is, this is really like fits into the genre of like the what I guess I don't know what to call them, but like America. Exploitation, like Merca exploitation, where it's like just, you know, there there's troops, there's there's terrorist uh, troops ki- killing terrorists, and um, there there's a rescue somewhere, and uh, basically a lot of uh, you know patriotic like chest beating. <laughs>
1: uh, pretty much, I, I file it under the uh, the the genre America, fuck yeah
0: yeah basically it was it was you know it's it's team America, but like played completely straight,
1: yeah, yeah, pretty much and
0: oh my god,
1: <laughs> yeah, pretty much but but bes- beside that, you know besides making you know the uh America movies and the like low budget exploitation and ninja movies. They also managed to attract some pretty uh, talented directors to Canon. They got people like John Cassavetes, Jean-Luc Godard, uh, Fra- Franco Zeffirelli, uh, Barbet Schroeder, uh, Andrei Konchalovsky, and they basically said, like, you know, okay, here, so here, you guys want to, uh, you guys want to make a film? All right, here you go. Go ahead, and we'll leave you be. We'll leave you alone. Just go ahead,
0: yeah, I mean um, I think I already said I this, but um Ebert really Roger Ebert said like no other uh, studio took as much risk and like is willing to to put themselves out there as uh, Canon did
1: and yeah, absolutely and in that in that. In that aspect you gotta respect them for their uh for their dedication to anything related to film
0: yeah absolutely um <clears throat> so one of the other movies that I wanted to talk about is just to bring you know all of the um eighties action stars together is the classic 1987 Sylvester Stallone sports drama film over the top.
1: Yes, <laughs> the, uh, uh, the classic, the biggest of all time classic.
0: Um, yeah, I mean, for for those of you who are unfamiliar with this movie, let's uh, I'll, I'll, I'm just gonna go through like the basic basic plot. So Stallone, uh, he's, he's playing a trucker uh, named Lincoln Hawk, which is, you know, thumbs up. Awesome. But the gimmick is that he arm wrestles to make some extra cash on the side. And at that point you're, you're either with the movie or you're not.
1: Yeah. It's like, it's like, we're going to have these thrilling action scenes of Stallone holding hands with these big uh strong strongbound uh, meat-headed uh headed guys and they're just gonna be going back and forth like that. And the action scene's over in about like two seconds.
0: Yeah, it's I mean, basically the 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 entire goal of the movie is Stallone trying to get to the World Arm Wrestling Championships in, of course, Las Vegas. And well, I refuse to believe world arm wrestling championships are a real thing, but it probably is.
1: <laughs> and, and of course, it takes place in Vegas because Vegas holds events for anything. Yeah.
0: So so that, yeah, like uh, like Alex said, there's a lot of these great uh, close-ups of Stallone making Stallone face and making Stallone noises as he <laughs> holds hands with uh, the guy in front of him. And it's just like, <laughs> oh no!
1: In, in the final scene, in the final scene, it's it's in slow mo. It's in slow motion. You get to see Stallone do Stallone face in slow motion.
0: Oh my! Yes, dude. Uh... <laughs>
1: he beats the guy, and then he just goes,
0: <laughs> <"Aah!"> <laughs> which is. As we all know, the exact noise he makes when he's coming. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. Oh, man. Also, uh, somewhat incredibly, uh, Giorgio Moroder is involved with the soundtrack, with the score, at least. (laughs) Um, You may have... uh, you may be familiar with uh, Marauder's uh, production work and, of course, his numerous other uh, film scores.
1: Mm-hmm. And, oh, my God, they got Stallone and Giorgio Moroder, whom they paid up the wazoo to actually be in the film. They, uh, I think they paid Stallone something like $15 million yeah, when...
0: it's like some crazy like amount and these are in like 1980s dollars we're talking. So this is it was probably like half the budget of the movie or or maybe it's the entire budget of the movie and it just went to Stallone.
1: <laughs> you're you're close actually. You're close because the budget of uh Over the Top is only 24 million.
0: Oh shit. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> They're dropping like 15, 14 million just on Stallone.
1: <laughs> yeah, um, they were classic examples of uh, basically starfuckers.
0: Yeah. Fucking <laughs> <laughs> starfuckers.
1: No, and for some reason, they were throughout their heyday. I'll, I, can you call it a heyday? I'm not sure. Like Throughout their heyday, they were bankrolled by a, a guy on Wall Street named uh, Michael Milken, who was known as the uh, the junk bond king, made billions of dollars off junk bonds in Wall Street, uh, eventually went to jail for a long time because of that. But he managed to raise over $300 million for Canon Films, which... Is insane, and with that amount of money, they were able to buy the biggest cinema chain in the UK, in Italy, in uh, the Netherlands. Um, They bought uh, the they bought Elstree Studios, which is where uh, the first uh, Star Wars movies were made. Uh, They bought the uh, Pathé Film Library, which had a collection. Of over two thousand films, they were—they basically, they conquered the world.
0: Yeah, pretty much.
1: The problem was though, and they had movies. You know, they didn't have a set. They didn't have like, they couldn't go to Universal or, uh, or like uh, Fox or Paramount and ask if they could film on their sets. No, they uh, shot everything on location, and it was tough because they had. Like, as I'm, as we mentioned before, they had like over, they made over 20 films a year, but they were filming them in every single, every single continent. Pretty much, they had movies going the U.S. and in Europe and Asia, in Africa and, you know, like they couldn't keep track of all that. How can you keep track of all that?
0: I think I think it's time for us uh, to talk about the most infamous of of all, canon films, and I think. Um, One that most people are familiar with. And we're we're talking Superman Four: Quest for Peace, people.
1: That's right. The absolute... Can you call it the absolute worst Superman movie ever?
0: I think so. I mean, this is like... I mean, this is like hot dog shit on a sidewalk level of bad.
1: (laughs) Yeah. No, I... I, uh, Actually, no. Now that I think about it, I, I definitely agree because if you think about it you know superman supposed to be big big budget movie you know you got christopher reeve coming back you got gene hackman coming back um and it's supposed to be like riddled with the with glorious special effects or like the best special effects that you can get for 1987 and it was a budget of only 17 million dollars Try making a special effects movie on a seventeen million dollar budget.
0: Yeah, and this uh, this is not even going into the script, which um, which we will get into. But yeah, it's just I think originally they wanted to have like a higher budget for the film, but they were forced to slash it to seventeen million, and when. When you see the movie, um, which Wisely, I think, has very little uh, presence on home video and streaming media, um, it is incredible. Um, The the visual effects are just incredible.
1: (laughs) And by incredible, we mean incredibly shitty. Like you could see, you could see the outlines of the green screen as like characters were like, "quote unquote" falling to their uh, like to their deaths. Or you could see like you know as Superman is like lowering a group of people to the ground. You could actually see the string, like the like the bits of wire that were holding them up.
0: Yeah, I think also the only film. Superman or the bad guy, Nuclear Man, once and they just recycled the footage. Oh, like like when they when they flew around, yeah.
1: They did, they did do that, (laughs) and it's like, it's like, wait a minute, didn't I see that already? Yeah, I did, didn't I? Um, (laughs) yeah, it was, yeah, it still baffles me to this day, which leads us to. The script, uh, yes. Christopher, Christopher Reeve did not want to come back and do Superman four. He was very adamant against doing it, and so finally, the producer finally gone and Globus <clears throat> said to him, "It's like, okay, Chris, you know, we're going to give you control of the script. What kind of a story do you want? Do you want to tell?" And so he comes up with the story of Superman literally stopping war and getting rid of all nuclear weapons.
0: Yeah, and um, Gene Hackman, as uh, Lex Luthor, uh, takes this as an opportunity to, to do some bad shit. He gets broken out of prison by, I think it's his nephew or something. Yes, and, it's his uh, nephew. Somehow, he. He gets, like, a strand of Superman's hair, from what I remember. And then, like, Mm -hmm. I don't know. Like, he he puts it on a nuclear missile and then shoots the missile into space or the sun. Mm -hmm. And and somehow, uh, out of that, um, a nuclear man is born.
1: (laughs) Yeah. A nuclear man. Probably the least menacing villain of all time, um, and he was played by—I uh, forget the actor's name—but the guy who played him was an ex-Chippendales dancer.
0: Oh uh, no, no, <laughs> I, 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 I know exactly who played him. He had like a, like a silly, like he had a silly name. I think it was like Mark Pillow.
1: Mark Pillow. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Uh, okay. Sure. But let's <laughs> let's go with that. Who had the power of uh, lengthening his? Is it lengthening his nails or something?
0: Yeah, like he grows his nails, and then I guess that shows that he's radioactive. I I, I don't know.
1: I I guess, and it's like uh, sure. Okay, um, and, yeah, so, the movie, let's just say the movie, the most I can say about the movie was, it happened, like, it exists.
0: Yeah, I, I, I incredibly, um, you know, this movie was released, and, um, yeah, it basically ended the the Superman films for a while.
1: For nearly 20 years.
0: Yeah, I think um it wasn't until 2006 that uh Superman Returns came out. That's right. Yeah. I mean when when you when you watch Superman 1 and 2, you know, it's uh th- those were good movies and the first one was great. The second <laughs> one, I think um I think there was, like, a bit of uh, fallout between Richard Donner and the studio, so, um, I mean, it's still a good movie, uh, but, um, yeah. And then there's Superman 3, which is, I, I guess it's, like, so okay. Like, it, it's it's not exceptionally bad, but it's not good either, so it was just, like, whatever. But, uh, yeah.
1: Superman 3 is essentially a Richard Pryor comedy that just happens to have Superman in it. You might as well call it Richard Pryor Meets Superman.
0: Yeah. um, Oh my God. Uh, He is. What's his. Yeah, he's just like completely like hamming it up in Superman 3.
1: Oh, and let's not forget that classic moment where uh, (laughs) Superman fights. Like, the evil version of himself.
0: Yeah. Which apparently...
1: But, yeah, I mean, back to canon, I mean, Superman 4 wasn't quite the death knell for them yet. That belonged to what basically amounted to their final film, Masters of the Universe.
0: Yes, which... You know, uh, as a recurring theme brings another uh, 80s action star into the picture.
1: That's right. Mr. Dolph Lundgren as He-Man.
0: Yeah, Mr. uh, Ivan Drago himself. (laughs) That's right. I will break
1: you. Uh, If he dies, he dies. Unfortunately, he does not say that. Yeah,
0: unfortunately, um, well, number one, this is a, uh, you know, this is a adaptation of a Saturday morning cartoon made to sell toys. Mm -hmm. So um, things are not um, looking good.
1: No, and uh, I feel bad for guys like, you know, I feel bad for Dolph Lundgren, but I also feel bad for... Frank Langella, who plays a uh, Skeletor.
0: Yeah, I. <laughs> yeah, I feel bad for um, Frank Langella.
1: I mean, oh god, it's a. <laughs> it's a funny story. Uh, Stallone actually came to the <laughs> to the set of Masters, and he uh, looked up and saw Dolph Lundgren, and he turned to the director and said, "You gave that guy lines." Jesus. You knew, like, it. I mean, had the budget been a little bit bigger, it was only a $22 million budget, mm-hmm. had the budget been a little bit bigger and not as campy, well, I mean, no, 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 sorry, never mind. No, if the budget was a little bit bigger, maybe it could have gone on to be a little bit more successful while retaining the uh, that camp feel to it that made the Saturday morning cartoon so popular.
0: Yeah, but it, it, as a recurring theme, you know, it's um, the effects were not great. the The production was just like, you know, it's um, it's a canon film. What else can we say? <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, f- fun fact: I think this was one of uh, Courtney Cox's early roles too. She's some. Uh, she's some. Uh, person from earth who somehow gets transported to uh, eternia
1: yeah no you're right this was years before she starred on uh on friends even before she was in ace ventura uh, yeah so i mean everyone's gotta start somewhere
0: yeah man um so yeah this he-man movie it's I don't know what else to say about it. I'm sure there's there's a million takedowns of this movie on the Internet. But I think I personally, you know, think it's just it's just kind of like sad, in my opinion. You know, it's like it's got it's got a bit of potential. It's got it's got some good people in it. And and Frank Langella was, you know, he, he he's very in he, he was like super into it because i think in an interview he said his kid was like super into he-man so yeah it's um i'm <laughs> i mean to go from dracula to this <laughs> yeah for sure yeah listeners uh google image search the skeletor from this film because he looks like shit
1: <laughs> you can say that again it's it looks like a guy in a a Skeletor mask for Halloween.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's like... I don't know. It's kind of like this weird, like, $2 paper mache uh, construction of Skeletor. And it's, like, slapped onto uh, Langella's face. And it's like, he's wearing, like, a bunch of rags. And it doesn't even look like a cape or a hood or, or looks that cool.
1: Yeah, it's just... It's just
0: bizarre. Yeah, it's a mess. And um, Dolph Lundgren also, unfortunately, does not have the, the He-Man bowl cut. He he kind of has like... What is it? A mullet. A mullet, basically, yeah.
1: <laughs> He-Man with a mullet. Who knew?
0: Hey, man. Um, sometimes you just get to take whatever role <laughs> you got. <laughs>
1: <laughs> True. At least the uh, Dolph Lundgren went on to do. Uh, he went on to do better things, like uh, some movie he did. Oh, a, a, sh- a showdown in a little Tokyo with uh, Brandon Lee. Yes, which we'll we'll get to at some point in our in our uh, our run here.
0: Yeah, definitely need to talk about Brandon Lee and uh, the Crow. Oh, my God.
1: Love that film.
0: Love yeah. that film. Uh, just as an aside, like, I had a friend who every Halloween dressed up as a crow. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, I like the movie, but, like, come on. Didn't realize he was that obsessed. He he was super into the crow. He he even got, like, the comics and shit.
1: Ah. So the crow actually spoke to him.
0: He, he, yeah. um. I mean, I don't want to throw him under the bus or anything, but it was just, it was a completely like, I don't know, I guess. Hey, I mean, I'm super into Batman, so, but I don't, I, I, I've never like dressed up as Batman every Halloween. That's, that's, that is extra.
1: Yes, it is. (laughs) Yes, it is.
0: (laughs) But yeah, um, He-Man, uh, commercial failure, um, didn't even make back its budget it was it was a uh, what little budget it had um but you know with a film that's this bad there is a cult following and um it, it's campy it's it's fun but you know <laughs> you, you can tell that uh the people involved were kind of they're kind of into it yeah
1: Oh, they were well, except Dolph Lundgren. He said uh, in an interview, he said uh, that I, he felt a little bit stupid doing it. That's true. And he's like like, 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 I don't know what I'm supposed to do. How am I supposed to play a toy? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, guy has a uh, guy has a a doctorate in biomechanical engin- engineering. And yeah, this is the movie most people associate him with, this and Rocky 4.
0: Yeah, just uh him playing like lunkheads basically.
1: Pretty much. Pretty much.
0: <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I guess that's pretty much the the end of uh the beginning of the end of uh Golan and Globus. Um That's right. There's um but- there was kind of a Attempt for um, for other uh, adaptations, if you will. Um,
1: they 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 tried. They tried. I'll just put it. They uh, they were so much in debt by that point. They were so much in debt that they literally tried anything. They sold off, uh, L Street, the Pathé Library, all the cinema chains, and they tried to you know recoup their investments with all the uh, the other movies. They were trying to make like uh, like Cyborg and Journey to the Center of the Earth, which, interestingly enough, is a special effect movie without any special effects.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: <laughs> but uh, no, by, by the time it got to like 1989, I want to say, they were bought out by an Italian uh, financier named uh, Giancarlo Peretti, who <laughs> basically was one of the biggest con men in the world who may or may not have may not have had ties to, uh, to the mafia. And he bought them out. He owned them for about a year. And then I think he just, I don't know who he sold it to, but whoever he sold it to just, uh, let it die.
0: Yeah. Um, you know, Peretti, I think he like just defaulted on, on a bunch of payments. And, um, I think he got took to court. Um, at some point, and uh, he had to uh, flee back to Italy. So, yeah, that's the saga of Giancarlo Peretti. That's
1: right. And, uh, and Golan and Globus tried, uh, tried carrying on for a few more years. Golan even started his uh, his own company, which uh, failed miserably because it was basically putting out the same amount of the same films that Canon was making um globus uh, in the mid 90s was uh, diagnosed with uh, with cancer but he made a he made a healthy recovery uh uh go on eventually like he continued making uh films uh and he uh, he actually passed away about a, about a couple of years ago and when the documentary came out the one that we we've been ref- referring to uh, electric boogaloo the wild untold story of canon films. It was such a success that w- when they, you know, when, when they found out, when Golden and Globus found out they were, there was a documentary being made about them. They went and made their, <laughs> made their own documentary about themselves in which they got, they got Stallone to be in it. They got Jean-Claude Van Damme to be in it. They got Chuck Norris to be in it. I mean, it's, it's basically them, you know, trying to say base and saying like you know like oh it wasn't as bad as everyone thought it was while the uh, electric boogaloo documentary is just balls to the wall off the cuff unfiltered uncensored say whatever the hell you want because they're probably not gonna see this
0: yeah um, tying it back to uh, the last episode um, Brett Ratner was one of the producers of The Electric Boogaloo documentary, actually.
1: It was, as was his company, Rat Pack Films.
0: Yep. So, yeah, everything everything is one. Everything <laughs> is connected.
1: Everything is one. So, like, in conclusion, did we manage to accurately depict why canon was so uh, so popular?
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, they, they they kind of prefigured all the trends that were going to happen in the 80s. And they just, in some ways, they just, like, really didn't give a shit about what script they had as long as they kept filming. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. And they had a, up until Superman four at least, they followed, a, like, a pretty successful formula. It was make it was basically to make low-budget, films either of the horror action or exploitation genre you know keep doing that keep making those films and then gain a following and then gather enough money to maybe go a little bit in on a bigger budgeted film and see how that turns out
0: i think as a part of the afterlives of uh, canon films One of their movies uh, for you fans out there was actually Rift on Mystery Science Theater 3000, um, Alien from L.A. Um, It's I think it's season. I don't know what season of MST3K that's on. But, yeah, check it out. Actually, check out all the movies we reference, especially uh, Over the Top. That's legitimately one of my favorite movies.
1: Yes. (laughs) It's a great film. And also, yeah, just, just check them out. I'm going to be doing the uh, the same thing. I'm going to make it a, a mission. By the time this year is done, I will have seen every single canon film that Golan and Globus made.
0: Hell yeah, man. Uh, that's, that's fucking goals right there. <laughs> yes. <it is. laughs> All right. Um, I think I'm just going to leave you guys with the He-Man theme for this week Um, yeah from me and Alex uh, it's been another episode of questions like this Uh, see you see you listeners next time
1: thank you very much for listening
0: and the masters of the universe I am Adam